This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Today, Governor Tony Evers announced a $90 million initiative intended to address staffing shortages in schools across Wisconsin. The increased funds are meant to address problems in schools during the COVID-19 pandemic, including larger class sizes due to staff turnover and challenges to student mental health. This move doubles the governor's previously announced funding for the Get Kids Ahead initiative to provide mental health services to children. The new funding amounts to about $90 per child and comes from the state's allocation of funds from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Dane County Park Commission announced that it will hold a public hearing regarding a proposed fee increase for 2023. The commission evaluates fees annually while considering costs associated with park activities, but it has not increased them in five years. The proposal would increase fees for dogs, lake access, and mountain biking, while adding discounts for veterans and military personnel. The hearing will be held Wednesday, September 15th at 4.45 p.m. at the City County Building in downtown Madison. Members of the public are invited to attend this meeting in person or via Zoom. St. Dunstan's Episcopal Church on Madison's west side has begun to pay a voluntary tax to the state's indigenous people for using their historic land, according to Madison 365. This tax is modeled after similar fees that tribal nations in the Pacific Northwest have adopted and stand conceptually separate from an act of charity or generosity since it stems from an act of atonement, church leaders said. The $4,000 sum is being donated to the Wisconsin Intertribal Repatriation Committee after St. Dunstan's consulted with local leadership of the Ho-Chunk Nation on whose ancestral land the church is constructed. A cord has been tied across the Badger State Trail on Madison's southwest side three times over the past week, apparently as a booby trap to clothesline bicyclists. One was knocked off his bike by an HDMI cord tied across a bike bridge last Friday, and then on the next two days the cord was retied back in place twice, reported WISC-TV News. Police are investigating the incidents, but also encourage cyclists to stay aware of their surroundings. On Monday, the Madison Metropolitan School District announced a modest raise for education assistance for the 2022-23 school year. The $2 per hour raise fell well short of a $5 raise advocated by the local teachers union, the Wisconsin State Journal reported. Funding decisions by the school board have been fraught this year as its members say revenue limits imposed by the state government have left them with few options to expand their budget. Meanwhile, state Republican legislators are pointing to a new pool of federal funds for pandemic relief as the reason revenue limits don't need to be increased. Members of the Madison School Board reassured the public that other paths to wage increases will be discussed in mid-September. Madison schools' free breakfasts and lunches will not be universal this year, the Capital Times reports. Since early in the COVID-19 pandemic, Madison schools have provided breakfasts and lunches free of charge to students. Now with federal funding drying up, the school district will return to an application model. Families are encouraged to apply for free or reduced price lunches. Applications have not reached pre-pandemic levels, but that is likely to change when school restarts. Some schools will continue to provide free lunches to all, but parents are still encouraged to apply for accurate data collection purposes. No students will be turned away from getting lunches. Instead, the school district intends to help parents complete the paperwork in due time. And now on to today's top stories. When the pandemic
pandemic hit in 2020, the city of Madison had to close its temporary men's homeless shelter downtown. Since then, the city has decided to get serious about finding a permanent space for a men's shelter. Today, additional funding from the county is looking to finally bring that permanent shelter here to Madison. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has the story. After two years of trying to find a home for a permanent men's homeless shelter, city and county leaders are aiming to make it a reality by 2024. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi and Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced today that they are investing a combined $9 million to build a new shelter. Dane County has already allocated $3 million for the project. That funding was approved by the Dane County Board. But today, Executive Parisi announced another $6 million towards the project. He says that's the largest expenditure in the coming 2023 capital budget. But that budget has yet to be fully released or approved by the Dane County Board. Addressing homelessness requires a holistic approach and a continuum of services, but above all, it cannot work without partnership and cooperation among all levels of government and the community. Be it outreach to those in need, volunteering at one of our shelters, providing case management services, or administering rental assistance, our community is focused on addressing and preventing homelessness with more resources going to those in need than ever before. The site of the new shelter was approved by the Madison Council in April after several stalled and failed searches to find a space. The new 40,000-square-foot shelter in Bartillon Drive is projected to house 200 people. It's the first permanent men's shelter in Madison. Before the pandemic, a temporary shelter was housed in the basement of Grace Episcopal Church in downtown Madison for decades. But the pandemic forced that shelter to close due to its tight, confined spaces. At an outdoor press conference earlier today, Mayor Rhodes-Conway acknowledged that a permanent men's shelter has been a long time coming. For too long, we have largely avoided responsibility for adequately supporting our population of homeless men. For decades, men were housed in church basements, but space and resource limitations made it difficult to do more than provide a warm place to sleep at night, a meal, before people were turned back out onto the streets. We must do better. Rhodes Conway says it will be built with a focus on dignity. This new shelter facility is expected to include trauma-informed design, offering safe and dignified accommodations complete with restrooms, showers, a kitchen and laundry facilities, space for isolation and quarantine beds and other design elements to improve air quality and overall guest health and safety, a focus on welcoming space with natural light and other design features to enhance environmental sustainability and reduce operating costs, and space to accommodate supportive services that will help connect shelter users to stable housing in the long term. On top of the $6 million provided by the county, the city of Madison has committed $10 million to the project, and a $2 million federal grant brings the total amount currently allocated for the project to $21 million. Parisi says that the new shelter is important because it will allow the county to continue the work they've done to address homelessness since 2020. Since the pandemic, we have found permanent housing for more than 250 households that were previously experiencing homelessness. We've been able to prevent countless evictions and new cases of homelessness 
through our initiatives using federal dollars to provide rental assistance, security deposits, and a broad array of services to help people stay in their homes. We'll continue to partner on a vast array of services designed to help those who are without housing or in danger of losing their housing find and keep their homes. Construction on the shelter is expected to begin in 2024. The mayor adds that the temporary shelter on Zaire Road is not slated to be closed until construction of the permanent shelter is complete. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. Labor Day is almost here, and that means Labor Fest is returning to Madison's south side. The festival will be held next Monday, September 5th, from noon to 5.30 p.m. at the Madison Labor Temple. WORT Labor Radio, Labor Radio reporter Ellen La Luzerne spoke with Kevin Gundlach, president of the South Central Federation of Labor, about what to expect at this year's celebration. Can you describe the event? Yeah, Labor Fest is back, and this is really exciting. The South Central Federation Labor, AFL-CIO, we're going to celebrate Labor Day this year, September 5th, and it'll be on the Labor Temple grounds. We have two bands, VO5 and Chris O'Leary, that are going to perform. And in between the two bands, we'll also have what's called our Saturday Roll Call, where all the unions are up there letting people know that they all stand together. But this year, it's a little different because we had the year of the strike, and now we have a year of organizing. So we're going to hear from labor activists and union members a little bit about what they're doing when it comes to organizing organizing. We'll hear from the nurses that will be going on strike possibly. Also, we will have a lot of informational tables out there. We'll have food and drink. So it's really going to be a great time. We also expect to have the current governor and our future U.S. senator as well as current senator. And many, many others will be stopping by to celebrate alongside working class. Part of the event involves the Scuffles Community Services Committee and a drive for supplies for the Madison Schools Transition Education Program. What's that all about? Well, each year we do a different drive to help out folks that are not as fortunate as others. And this year, we're going to be working with the MMSD Transition Education Program, which really impacts a lot of our homeless children and homeless students in the Madison area. So we'll be asking folks to bring in their gift cards of various type, colored pencils, non-permanent markers, composition books, flashcards, things even like deodorant, small bottles of laundry soaps, things like that. Then we're really proud to partner up with MMSD and, and working with the MTI union members and, and AFSCME members that work for the school district. How can people help with what may be needed to make things happen for Labor Fest? The way we keep Labor Fest going and make it fun and successful, in part, is through volunteers. We only have four people signed up and we need a total of 12. If we don't have people in the food tent and the runners, then the food is really going to go out slow. And So all you need to do is get online, www.scfl.org, and you'll see Labor Fest information right there. Uh, and then there's a link to sign up and volunteer. Why don't you give us a pitch for why people should stop at Labor Fest? This is celebrating all of us, union and non-union alike, but obviously also the labor union's contributions within our community and within society. You'll be able to find out a lot about that if you don't know much about unions, but but more and more people are. We've got a lot of organizing efforts going on. We've got workers fighting back in many areas. And this is Ellen Lalazer for Labor Radio.
It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Every year, the National Endowment of the Arts Awards grants money to every state to be distributed to arts organizations. But the states themselves have to match the funds or else the amount of money provided is drastically reduced. While this has been a relatively routine decision in Wisconsin in the past, this year the state legislature's Joint Finance Committee waited until the last minute to approve matching funds, and nobody knows why. Earlier today, WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with Scott Gordon, editor-in-chief at Tone Madison, to break down this issue. So, Scott, let's just sort of kick things off here. Tell me a little bit about the uh, story that you released here just today. Yeah, so this is an update on something I'd reported on previously. Basically, the um, Joint Finance Committee in the legislature approved some matching funds that the state needed to put up in order to take full advantage of uh, some federal funds uh, from the National Endowment for the Arts. And basically how this works, the NEA gives each state a certain allocation each fiscal year. The state will match that. And then the state's arts uh, agency, in this case, the Wisconsin Arts Board, distributes that money in the form of grants to individual arts organizations. Um, And because the fiscal years of the state and federal government don't always match up, sometimes the state has like provisionally put up some money toward that match, but then the federal money comes in and it's more than is expected. So the state, um, you know, has to revise its matching allocation upwards if it wants to get the, uh, the full loan out. Um, and so basically this was a delay over $109,200. Um, that was again, kind of a, just, you know, leveling up to, uh, you know, our funding position from the ADA for fiscal year 2020. And, um, this affected grants for 163 different organizations, uh, all over the state, you know, large, small, urban, rural, um, quite, a, quite a spread of it. And um, the delay is what was really noteworthy here. Usually this is something that joint plans knock out here in the year. It took a little longer and people were getting to jeopardize some of that funding. So now, Scott, walk me through sort of what these grants are for maybe people who aren't really familiar with them. What are what are these National Endowment grants and uh, why are they so important for arts organizations here in Wisconsin? Well, these are doled out to uh, nonprofit arts organizations all over the state to provide um, support for different programming they want to put on. Um, you know, as is pretty typical with arts grants, there are some restrictions on how they can and can't use that money. Um, but, you know, basically this is a pretty routine thing the Wisconsin Arts Board does every year, um, distributing these grants. And I think one of the really important things about um, public arts funding, whether that's through the National Endowment for the Arts or, you know, a local government or what have you, is that... Um, organizations will get that funding and will kind of use it to leverage other funds um, from private donors and whatnot. Um, So the money itself is important, but it also provides them with some leverage and some credibility to raise other funds. And, you know, making all those different pieces come together is really what counts. Um, And so often if 
an organization is relying on some amount of public funding, you know, they're thinking about that money in and of itself, but also about how they can kind of use that to raise all the other money they need, you know, to kind of make all the pieces fit together. And so now you mentioned it there. Uh, the the crux of your story here is that it took uh, quite a bit longer than usual for the Joint Finance Committee to actually go ahead and imp- and approve the matching of these funds. And it, it, it's sort of a mystery as to why it took so long, correct? Yeah. Um, you know, starting in November of 2021, the Arts Board and, you know, arts advocates were asking Joint Finance to put this on its agenda and take it up. And for some reason, it just kept not showing up on the agenda. Um, The four Democrats on the committee had kind of pushed for it to get on the agenda, too. And, you know, when it finally came to a vote at uh, the joint finance meeting on August 16th, you know, it was over and done with and approved in just a few minutes. There wasn't a whole lot of incident or discussion about it, um, which just makes it all that more strange that uh, it took this long. And if joint finance had not done this in time, all these organizations that were waiting on grant funding from the arts board would have still gotten some money, but it would have been a bit less and they would have had to make an adjustment. And so waiting on this outcome was creating um, a lot of worry and uncertainty for, um, for these arts organizations. And yeah, so in your article, you say uh, that the deadline to sort of approve the price matching was September 30th. That was sort of the last day that the Joint Finance Committee could have approved it. Now, they did eventually approve it here, but if they didn't approve the matching of the money, then they wouldn't have gone uh, very much of it at all. So what would this have meant for arts organizations here in Wisconsin if this money wasn't, uh, you know, sort of approved by the Joint Finance Committee? Um, you know, it would have meant, you know, probably in some cases, um, scaling back their capacity or not being able to do things to the extent that they wanted to do. Um, I wish I had time to drill into kind of more specifics about how this was impacting um, some of the more some of the individual organizations that were waiting on these funds. Um, when I did my initial story about this back in May, I was talking with the director of Arts for All Wisconsin, which is, is based here in Madison and does uh, arts programming for people with disabilities. Yeah, well, it just created a lot of uncertainty because this you know, funding can kind of function as a bit of a cornerstone for these arts organizations, like I mentioned. So, uh, you know, I think in some cases, obviously they would have gotten some money, um, you know, but it could have, uh, you know, hurt their capacity to, you know, pull off the programming they wanted to, to the extent they wanted to, things like that. And, you know, it's also at a time when these arts organizations are still trying to claw their way back from the pandemic. And, you know, all the federal COVID relief, for the most part, is is pretty much spoken for. So that just, it just kind of compounds the uh, uncertainty. I do wish I had more specifics about um, how that would have looked kind of on the ground for some more of the individual arts organizations. Now, you also mentioned in your story that uh, so what they ended up approving was the uh, $109,200, but they they had the opportunity to go a little bit further with that uh, back earlier this year. You, you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah. So, there was an option before them 
before the, the committee to um, approve funding for both fiscal year 2022 and 2023. And um, that would have added up to about uh, $254,800. And um, one of the members of the committee, uh, Evan Goyke, um, who's an assembly member from Milwaukee, um, made a motion in support of that, but uh, that that was voted down. And then um, the committee then moved on to voting on just the $109,200, and that passed unanimously with uh, with the members who were there. Um, you know, and really the only really the only comment or discussion that went on was uh, you know Goyke, you know, talking a bit about the importance of arts funding. But otherwise, um, it was, you know, on the surface, like a pretty sleepy and perfunctory meeting. Uh, there wasn't any discussion about why this was delayed as long as it was. Um, and I think just the fact that we're talking about a pretty small amount of money, especially on the scale of state government, but people had to kind of go through so much waiting and so much trouble just to secure it. And I think that is very emblematic of the way public arts funding works, uh, you know, especially in a state that uh, has a pretty low commitment to that, you know, when you rank it nationally. Um, and I mean, public arts funding at the local government level also is like this pretty convoluted, pretty difficult to follow process where people are depending on, you know, really small amounts of money and having to really, uh, you know, uh, go through quite a lot of anxiety for, um, uh, you know, for not very much. I've been talking with Scott Gordon, editor-in-chief over at Tone Madison, about his new story released just today about the state's Joint Finance Committee and the National Endowment for the Arts. Now, we just sort of scratched the surface on this story, so you can read the whole thing for yourself online over at ToneMadison.com. Scott, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. All right. Thanks very much, Nate. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. On Sunday, several organizations gathered at Ulbrich Park for the Abortion Action Fair. Organized by the Socialist Feminist Collective of the Madison DSA, the event sought to share knowledge about how to get involved and take action for abortion access. WORT reporter and Her Turn contributor Zoe Sullivan spoke with people there and about what's motivated motivating them to advocate for reproductive justice. In this excerpt, we'll hear organizers with the Socialist Feminist Collective, Rape Crisis Center, and Urban Triage. So my name is Katie. I'm the education coordinator for the Socialist Feminist Collective, SOCHFEM of Madison. And how, how did this event end up coming together? Um, so I did a lot of emailing, a lot of work behind the scenes. So after, so we started the Strike the Ban campaign um, in October, Sochfem Collective did, um, because we knew a decision about Roe v. Wade was imminent. So before that, we started gathering signatures because the standing piece of legislation, now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned um, by the Supreme Court, is a ban from the Wisconsin Constitution from 1849. And so... Um, we were organizing and we have been doing the Strike the Ban campaign and petition, uh, which is online at striketheban.com. 
Um, but after, and we had, we led the, the rally protest march the evening night after uh, the day of the decision. And we wanted to move forward knowing that people feel really uncertain about and powerless in this world of now, now what do I do? How do we get involved? I have questions. How do I get answers? What is it? What is a safe way for me to do that? What, it, you know, what is the internet, right? And so after the day of the decision, we started reaching out to different reproductive justice organizations in Madison to put together a community event that would bring different organizations together that people could meet, get involved, ask questions, um, and have been working on coordinating that throughout the summer to bring us all here together today. So we organized this event, the Abortion Action Fair, to build up power in a form of longevity. What does that mean? Rallies, marches, protests are really important, powerful mo moments of show of people power, right? But they're also one-off, right? They're sort of big waves of moments of gathering together, but building social movements and movement organizing is so much more than that. It's building community, it's working, creating solidarity across organizations, getting LinkedIn, it's an everyday thing, right? And so part of that is why we wanted to do the abortion action fair to get people involved above and beyond sort of attending rallies and marches, but linking up with organizations that are doing the work and did the work before and are continuing to do the work around abortion rights, access and reproductive justice. Um, yeah, so I'm Maya. I work with the RCC Sexual Violence Resource Center and we are extremely happy to be here, part of this community event today and representing survivors and their ability to access options. What has it been like at the RCC since Roe was overturned? Yeah, it's been a bit more active for sure. A lot of people are just feeling more unsafe in general because without, um, without that legal protection, people are considering whether or not if they were in a violent situation or if they've been in a violent situation recently, if they will have the ability to decide what happens to their body next. So we have gotten a lot more calls about that. You know, we've been getting calls from people asking what will happen to me, you know. We have a lot of people who experienced sexual violence in the past and they have a legitimate fear that that could happen again. So um, we try to talk to them about the resources that we can provide. We try to connect them with any organization that will empower them with options and we're happy to partner with any other group that has the same orientation to pretty much deconstruct the violence that's happening in our community. We get a lot of clients who call um, on our helpline. We have a 24-7 helpline. So we get a lot of people that call who are not people who are in active situations, um, but who experienced sexual violence a long time ago. Um, so, you know, we have callers who were children and they were assaulted and nothing happened. We have callers who are now parents and when they were assaulted, um, that was not looked at um, for what it was. Um, they were young, uh, you, these are you know, 12, 13, 14 year old kids, but at the time at which they became parents, they didn't know that they had choices and they weren't considered victims. Um, so here they are calling us now in their 40s, 50s, 60s um, to finally get support for the first time around what happened and get validation for the experience that they had um, when they were really overlooked and essentially uh, put into a position they were ill-equipped to deal with. So um, even though that those stories are have been ongoing for quite some time, um, we have noticed an uptick in people calling because, you know, it's bringing up a lot of these memories and making people concerned about 
um, what could happen moving forward. I think what's really important um, for people that are considering, you know, what is my role in all of this, all the things that are happening, is just to remember that your number one job is to be your own advocate. Your number one job is to take care of your body. And um, I think a lot of folks uh, don't feel a sense of entitlement to their body. And so we try to empower people with the reality that they, they deserve to have control over what happens to them. And um, we, w we would stand with anybody that is feeling that they don't have that. My name is Sharmika Brown, Char for short. Um, I'm the operations manager here for Urban Triage. And how did Urban Triage come to participate in this event today? Well, <clears throat> we decided that when the law was passed that abortions were illegal here in Matt all over, but specifically here where we reside, we decided that our staff and everybody decided that we wanted to play a part in making a change, being there for people, being there for women. Um, we were all devastated and couldn't believe that this actually happened. So we decided that we wanted to bring on what's called, we call it a navigation specialist. And we are basically a one-stop shop for resources that women need, whether it's abortion services, whether it's transportation, whether it's counseling, whatever it is, we want to be able to provide those resources to people that are in need. Can you tell me more about um, what Urban Triage does and your mission? Yes, so we have a mission of empowering specifically black people, black bodies, black minds, and we are a community-centered program. Our programs are community-centered, um, providing resources, um, doing education, um, <clears throat> providing rental support, providing um, educational services, uh, providing direct services, um, homelessness prevention, um, to maintain housing, just a lot. Our agriculture program, our farming, we're just expanding, we're doing a lot. <laughs> so would it be fair to say that the aim is kind of to lift up the black community? Absolutely. Okay. What has it been like? Have you, since Roe was overturned, what have you seen through the people you work with? I've seen a feeling of dis a feeling of dismissiveness just being dismissed as a woman you know rights that were fought for and it just seems like a, a regression where we're all just we're dumbfounded we just can't believe this is actually a thing that's going on in 2022 that people are allowed to make choices for our bodies it's ridiculous what kind of support is Urban Triage providing in the wake of Rose overturning? Like, how are you supporting people? Um, so if anyone right now, like I said, we have created a position called the Navigation Specialist, which it's still we're up and we're getting that going. But still, we don't turn anybody away for any reason. So if a woman calls and says, hey, for instance, I need transportation to get you know out of town. We're going to do our very best to connect with people, whether it's ourselves or other agencies or other community programs, and get her what she needs. Whatever that looks like, whether it's gas, whether it's a ride, whether it's finding her somewhere to stay, we're going to figure it out. Is there anything 
I haven't asked you about. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, I just, no, I just think it's amazing, you know, that this, where we have things like this, you know, in the park at Obrick and everyone is here and just everybody has like the same like mind. Everybody comes together. And I think if we had more of this, you know, we really could make a bigger change on a larger scale. That was WRT reporter and Her Turn contributor Zoe Sullivan in conversation with several organizations at the Abortion Action Fair on Sunday. Have you ever watched a bird sweep through the air and think, how are they able to move so quickly? On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg details how the size and wing structure of birds can help them soar above us. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, I'll be talking about the bird wing and how different birds are able to fly. And this is such a cool topic to talk about. And right now, I thought it was very timely because we have a good number of aerial insectivores at our wildlife center. And those aerial insectivores are so tiny and require such a high degree of maneuverability that you just stare and wonder about how well they can catch insects on the wing. And so when I talk about aerial insectivores, I'm thinking about the swallows. We have a lot of barn swallows at the wildlife center right now. We have two chimney swifts, which are beautiful, amazing birds that we rarely get, but we have a couple of them who are just thriving and doing really well. And we've also had a good number of warblers that have been admitted now that it's the migratory period. So just this week, we've had lots of Tennessee warblers, for example, and we've had Nashville warblers. It's that time of year where they all start migrating from the north down to the south, and we see them hit windows. And these little aerial insectivores, uh, the ones that are either, you know, gleaning insects off of the foliage, or they're flying around catching insects on the wing. Any of those types of behaviors just really requires them to have an amazing ability to turn quickly, bank quickly, and catch food. And that is really hard as rehabilitators to assess. But how do they do it? You you have to have a really good understanding of the bird wing and anatomy to be able to really determine whether or not that animal that you're working with is going to be successful long term. So if you imagine that a swallow comes in and has hit a window, um, maybe just because it was flying and it saw the light, it saw a reflection, thought it could perch, you know, it's going to hit that window at a really high impact. And we very commonly see shoulder girdle fractures. So in the shoulder girdle, we have a couple of different bones and some of them are similar to humans and others aren't. But when I think of the shoulder girdle, I think of the clavicles. So we have clavicles as people. And then they also have the scapula, which is in the back. And that's also also then combined with the coracoid, which is a bone that is not present in people, but helps to keep up the body cavity and the keel, which is their central bone that helps hold up the pectoral muscles and their body cavity, which allows them to have better flight ability. And then we have the very last piece, which is the humerus. The head of the humerus fits into the shoulder girdle and we have humeruses, right? It's the big bone on our arms, that first one that connects to your shoulder. And that humerus is actually open to the respiratory system and bird bones are pneumatic, meaning that they're filled with air. So it makes them very light and able to get lift off compared to people. You know, we can't fly, but with hollow bones, birds can definitely fly pretty well because they're lightweight. And then we move down to the elbow and at the elbow, we have the forearm, which 
which is the radius and the ulna, both also bones that we have here uh, in human bodies. And then that extends to the wrist or the carpus, which in birds is actually different than humans. There are three different fused bones. Now we have five fingers, but they have three. So they have the allular digit, which is for fine tune movement. And then we have the major and minor metacarpal and the phalanx, the terminal phalanx. So it's all together, just kind of these little finger bones are the very end of the wing fused together and basically allow feathers to be attached and allow for up and down fine tune movement. When you actually extend birds' wings out all the way, if you see it in that beautiful arc, they actually get over 180 degrees of motion or range of motion in those wings because you have to think about how they're able to move one wing or both wings to bank and fly and soar on thermals. It is so incredible that they're able to do this. Now, we have some birds that are very heavy birds. They are very different than the birds that I'm thinking about, which are our aerial insectivores. Basically, low wing loading has a larger wing area relative to mass compared to one with a high wing loading. So those birds, the smaller wing, can carry the same amount of mass in flight. And so they can go quicker, they can move quicker, they can turn and bank quickly. And so those are what I'm thinking about when we think of our swallows. Now, the fine-tuned movement is also coordinated by the allular digit, which is that one tiny bone that's at the end of the wrist. And it's really cool. The function of the allula is still somewhat unknown in birds. Like, it is, is known what it's used for. So if you have something like a red-tailed hawk who's flying up in a thermal, they might just be able to hold out their wings, allow the warm air currents to go underneath, and then just use, like, their allular digits and the very tips of their fingers to just find move them and tune them so that they can circle and so they can just hold out that area of the wing and just be able to float and that is the coolest thing that I think in birds is just a tiny little you know tweak of a digit here a digit there and they're able to just turn but they're going to turn in wide circles right because those are big birds tiny aerial insectivore like a swallow it's going to be swooping and banking and going really quickly some of your occipiter species like cooper's hawk northern goshawk those are very fast birds that have to maneuver through trees and so that allular digit is for definitely for fine-tuned movement, but it's also, you know, something like the slats on a plane. It's able to kind of open and close to where it changes the airflow. Uh, it's usually used for like diving birds. So when you have a, a big bird, like the water birds, like a swan or something, they actually have to run really fast. And so they have to run or <laughs> take off and paddle on water. So if you've ever seen like a loon try to take off, they will start on one end of the lake and they will just like pump their wings as fast as they possibly can, use their legs, and they have to get assistance to really take off. And so those are the ones that have a, a tough time because they, you know, they can get airborne, but it's just, they, it takes them a lot more energy and that big amount of mass takes a running start to really get there. There's a lot of math that goes into it, a lot of physics for, you know, how they can change their wing and their movement and dynamics, you know, air temperature. There's so many things that could go into determining when and how well or effectively a bird can take off from the ground. But again, those birds that are, are up in the air all the time, they're not even going to go to the ground. So a swift or a swallow, they're just going to be up in their nest and they're going to fly from their nest. And very rarely will you ever find them down low. They're going to be swooping, maybe swooping over the water, catching insects and things. But really, you, you shouldn't ever see an aerial insectivore grounded just sitting there. That would actually be cause for concern. So 
something to think about when you are outside, maybe looking, watching, hiking, whatever, and you happen to see a bird like that on the ground, that's really abnormal. And that's where you should call a local rehabilitator because something is wrong with the wing or the shoulder girdle. And then the opposite is true. Like, let's say you have a goose and he's kind of hanging around. Just because he doesn't fly off doesn't necessarily mean that he's injured. Although there are definitely things that you can look for, like asymmetry in the wings, the elliptical wing shape of most of your passerine songbirds or aerial insectivores and things, it should be very evenly matched. Like the wingtips should be able to just be absolutely even over the tail. And if you saw one that was a little higher or a little lower, then that's where you have cause for concern. But a goose might open its wings, flap a little bit, and just kind of run away. Well, that's because they have a, a, a tough time with their body mass. They'll have to have a really good running start to be able to get off and get lift. And maybe they don't want to. Maybe they don't want to expend that energy right away. So interesting situations to be on the lookout for. Really cool to be able to see these different types of birds uh, flying while we're in the middle of migration. So if you get the time, go outside, go hiking, go look at things, go see what birds are out there and how they're flying and think about the bird wing and their anatomy and, and see and appreciate how really cool that structure is. Uh, you know, some days we all wish we could fly, but you know, birds just, they sit there and amaze us. So, you know, appreciate them for what they can do. and. The fact that they inspired us to be able to fly in aircrafts and other things. I think that's pretty amazing. So today's segment was all about the bird wing and how they've got different lift abilities and what those bones might be used for. Really cool topic and uh, we hope you enjoyed today's segment on WORT. If you find an injured animal, definitely give us a call at 608 608- 287-3235 at the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center or check your local DNR listing for your closest rehabilitator in your area. We hope we enjoyed this segment and uh, thanks for joining us on Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Be sure to grab your crackers, because this week on Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine gets ready for humanity's next trip to the moon with the new NASA mission named Artemis. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine, and tonight I'd like to talk about the latest moon mission from NASA. Artemis. To begin with, what is the Artemis mission? Artemis marks the return of human-crewed missions to the moon since the Apollo missions of the 1960s and 1970s. The current missions are also a testbed for the latest rocket system that NASA has developed, the Space Launch System, or SLS for short. Standing at 322 feet tall, Taller than the Statue of Liberty and nearly as tall as the Saturn V rocket, the SLS is the most powerful rocket launch system ever developed. The Artemis missions will be the first real test of the SLS system, and there are future missions planned for both crewed and cargo missions to deep space, including Mars. The first two missions, Artemis 1 and 2, are live tests of the new SLS launch system and Orion spacecraft, with the first mission being uncrewed. Artemis 1 was supposed to launch yesterday, August 29th, but that had to be scrubbed due to a leak in one of the engines. This was an unexpected failure, but not surprising. This is the first time the brand new SLS has ever been put on a launch pad for real, so some technical issues were likely to come up. 
The whole point of Artemis 1 is to sort out issues like this so that future launches proceed smoothly and safely, and the launch team is hopeful that Artemis 1 will be ready for the next launch window this coming Friday, September 2nd, though depending on how repairs go, it may not launch until October. Once Artemis gets underway, what's the goal? The primary goal of the Artemis missions is to land human crews on the surface of the moon within the next 10 years. This will be the first time humans have set foot on the moon since Apollo 17 in 1972, and it will be the first time in history that a woman and a person of color will walk on the moon. That alone will make history, but Artemis will lay the groundwork for even more history to be made. When Artemis 1 launches, it will spend about 40 days in space, taking 3 days to get to the moon and then spending about a month orbiting the moon and trialing systems on board the Orion spacecraft. While there will be no humans in the capsule, there will be occupants, three mannequins that take the place of living, breathing humans in order to gauge how living occupants will bear the journey on board Orion and SLS. It's true that we have safely sent people out to the moon before, but the mannequins will have a suite of sensors in them to make sure they don't get exposed to harmful amounts of radiation or acceleration stresses in the new spacecraft. This is especially important because this will be the first time that we are sending women out past low Earth orbit, and we need to make sure that everyone will be safe on the journey to and from the moon. Another goal of Artemis will be to lay the groundwork for future crewed missions beyond the Earth-Moon system. The first landing site for crewed Artemis missions will be the Lunar South Pole, where there may be vast deposits of water ice in the lunar soil. The Artemis missions will also explore the surface in order to find other resources necessary for both lunar surface stations and future missions to deep space, such as oxygen and hydrogen. The eventual goal will be to establish the moon as a way station for expeditions into deep space and to reduce the need to haul supplies from Earth's surface. Artemis will also be conducting science on the lunar surface. We learned a lot about the moon from the surface samples returned by the Apollo missions, including that the moon was formed early in Earth's history when a large protoplanet crashed into the young Earth, sending large amounts of rock and debris into orbit that coalesced into the moon. There's still much more to be learned about the moon, however, and future human exploration of the lunar surface through Artemis will yield new insights into the moon's history. Beyond that, the Artemis mission will explore how humans might live in zero or low gravity environments for long periods of time, which will be crucial to understand for future deep space missions. One of the most exciting developments to come from Artemis will be the establishment of Gateway, a space station that will be in continuous orbit around the moon. Gateway will be the stopping point of future Artemis missions before they land on the surface, and it will serve as a host lab for various experiments and space weather monitoring systems. Gateway will be a critical juncture to get human crews and supplies to and from the lunar surface, as well as a stopping point for missions to Mars. Gateway is currently scheduled to launch in late 2024, though that is subject to change. The Artemis program will also be a major driver in private sector space exploration. Through the new commercial lunar payload services, private companies have been bidding to construct lunar landers and explorers that will be launched on board the SLS which will not only forward NASA's scientific goals, but will also be pivotal in exploring the moon in search of industrial resources that we can use both here on Earth and in deep space. These resources will play a pivotal role in human advancement on Earth and beyond. In short, we are going back to the moon. These next 10 years will be crucial and exciting for the future of space travel, and we are about to see a lot of history in the making. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in tonight, and have a stellar week.
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter tonight was Ellen LaLazerne with Labor Radio. Special thanks to feature contributors Zoe Sullivan, Jackie Sandberg, and the Radio Astronomy crew. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrico Padio. Good night.